This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners, including references to suicide. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description and contact Lifeline if you need support on 131114. Hi, I'm Anita Annabelle and you're listening to The Good Chat, a podcast with honest conversations all in the name of, well, a good chat. It was so bad what happened to me that was either end my life or just like live life. One of the biggest things I think I've learned doing from my life is life, life's about giving. It's about giving back. For a while there, we were compared to like the Hilton sisters, which is hilarious when you saw us skateboarding up at Cronulla barefoot. I am so thrilled to introduce Denny Todorovic. They are a non-binary celebrity and fashion stylist and LGBTQ activist. Denny was so gracious with their time and taught me so much about their world, answering all the tough questions to empower us with knowledge about their community. I was actually pretty apprehensive about this chat due to my limited understanding. However, they were so eager to teach me and you, our listeners. We chatted about how they came out twice, first as gay at 19 and then last year as non-binary. However, their story was heartbreaking. There have only been two times in my life that I've ever had suicidal thoughts. The first time was coming out as gay and the second time was coming out as non-binary. And I think that speaks volumes to how difficult this can be. Denny also highlighted the importance of changing pronouns on Instagram and revealed why they are inspired to share their story. So as a kid, you watch all of this unfold on the news and all you see is like gay people are the devil. And you're like, oh, okay. If I had, just from the gay perspective, much less the non-binary perspective, if I had had like healthy, a healthy portrayal of gay anything represented to me in media, I would have been a much more well-rounded, happy human. This chat is enlightening, inspirational, and oh, so fabulous. And I can't wait for you to listen. We've recorded just before lockdown in Melbourne. Here's Denny Todorovic. Hello, Denny. Hello, darling. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? Oh, I'm very good. I'm a tad hungover. It was Melbourne Pride. It was Melbourne Pride this weekend. And it was also um, this Taylor Swift club night came to Melbourne. So I don't know if you've seen these, but they've been going viral all over TikTok. So they're these club nights that have popped up all over Australia yeah. where they get like a specific Taylor Swift DJ to just DJ Taylor Swift all night and they sell out in like minutes. That truly sounds like heaven, heaven. It, it was heaven. So I had that on the Saturday and then pride yesterday and my poor throat just can't handle all the singing I've done. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What's your favourite? Oh, wait, your favourite song. I saw this on your Instagram. It's Love Story, right? No, Love Story was the first one that I remember her by. But oh, it's really hard. I think... Okay, if you're going to put me on the spot right now at this moment in time, I would probably say Death by a Thousand Cuts, which is from Lover. It's a really good song. And I also love Cruel Summer, also off Lover. But there's so many. Oh, there's so many. So you don't like, you like her later stuff. You don't have a favourite from her earlier? Yeah, from her earlier, it's probably Mean, um, oh, which is like love. this really great song she wrote to like this um, critic that said she couldn't sing and it's just such a great anthem. And then I also love You Belong With Me. That's so cute. Oh, and my and gosh, like, it's um, so good. Yeah. Oh, I love I Taylor Swift. I wish they'd do that in Sydney. I've not too. seen that happen in, ta- in, in Sydney They have at them all. in Sydney. They do? Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the deets. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Do you think everyone's really <laughs> excited listening to our conversation about Taylor Swift? I bet you they're all <laughs> massive Taylor Swift fans too, so they're totally standing us right now. A hundred percent. If you're not a Taylor Swift fan, we don't want you here. But do you know who I'm really a fan of? Tell me. You. Oh, Anita. The first time I met you was in the Cosmo cupboard <laughs> and it was I when, remember. yeah and we worked on the same floor when you were in Cosmo and I was at Now to Love and honestly like I remember marching into the Cosmo room and going straight to you and it was after you had written the Kim Kardashian you had worn Kim Kardashian oh my clothes. god yes I just knew that I had to know you because you were so 
fabulous. The joy of having my own show is to be able to invite people on that I worship and adore. And you are one of those people who I have watched evolve and you are incredible. And you are the epitome of talent, expression and being you. And I think that is so important in this world. So I would really like to start at the beginning with you. And let's talk about your childhood because I feel like I want to know everything about how you got to be where you are now. Yeah. Well, before I answer that question, I would just like to let your listeners know that the first time I met you, I was also equally as mesmerized. It was like such a soul connection. And I feel was so blessed to be here and also congratulations on the show so oh thank you so much my pleasure my pleasure so my childhood my childhood was really honestly quite idyllic in so many ways I come from a beautiful family like I really hit the family lottery and my parents are the most exceptional people I know growing up they we always had a very like a best friend kind of relationship um they were like that with my brother and with me and it was just really cool our parents were our best mates they gave us the best advice they always kind of encouraged us to you know follow our dreams and you know whether it was like a hobby or like a creative endeavor like me with fashion they were the parents that were like yeah you want to be a fashion designer you can be a fashion designer like they were just amazing in that way um I grew up in Geelong which is where I'm talking to you from today. So Geelong's a, you know, relatively regional town. It's like, a, it's a, it's a big city with a small town heart is what I always say. Um, but certainly growing up, it was very, very heterosexual, very white. Mm. Um, and as a brown queer person, that was not always easy, but for the most part, I look back at my childhood with just absolute joy, but then simultaneously to that joy there's a real underlying like an underbelly of trauma and you know identity crises and battling with this internalized homophobia that I experienced my whole childhood so it was it was a journey. Can you explain internalized homophobia to me because I don't understand that concept. Sure so I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, like, you are what you hate, right? So I guess growing up when you feel when you start to feel gay or, you know, attracted to, in this case, let's say the same gender, um, you know, I was a little boy that liked other little boys. You start to really hate that feeling because the world tells you that that feeling is wrong. So sadly, there is a lot of internalized homophobia still within the queer community. And and these sorts of feelings are very um, similar to internalized racism, mm. um, you know, that people of colour feel or, uh, you know, various other things, internalised transphobia. It's basically like sometimes it's really hard to admit what you are and who you are and the easiest thing to do is just kind of hate it. So when I was little, I was also that kid that would sometimes say like, oh, that's so gay or oh, that like you know, you'd, I'd, pick on, I'd pick on my own because I was so scared to be that. Mm. It, was, it was really hard. I can't even imagine what that would have been like for you. You mm. didn't come out until you were 19. Um, is that right? Yeah. 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 So I was 19 when I came out as gay. And, oh, like, looking back now, I never, ever thought I would come out. It just wasn't going to be an option for me. I grew up Jehovah's Witness, um, which yeah. is very, very religious. Uh, I grew up, you know, I, I'm Serbian. We're ethnic people. We have very traditional values and it's getting married and having children and all of that. And as a teenager, that's all I ever wanted. I wanted to meet a girl. I wanted to fall in love and have three kids and live that white picket fence dream, 100%, always, always. Um, and in high school, I was pretty like I would say asexual. I didn't hook up with anyone, boy or girl. Like I was just so confused and didn't want to focus on any of that. Mm. So it wasn't until I turned 19 that I even kissed a girl for the first time. Like I was a real late bloomer. Yeah. So I had not kissed anyone up until my 19th birthday. And on my 19th birthday, I had this like existential crisis and I was like, oh my God, I haven't kissed anyone. And my best <laughs> mate like set me up with this girl and she was so lovely and divine. And after I kissed her, I remember he was like, so how was it? And I was like, 
yeah, it was okay. Like, you know, it was the first time. But then three weeks after that, I kissed a boy for the first time. And I was like, whoa, okay. Did you have this like the, the the butterflies in the tummy? I always say it's in my loins. Honey. Like, we- <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was all the butterflies. It was, you know, getting hard and feeling turned on and all of that stuff that, you know, was pictured to, was like painted to me as what a first kiss should feel like. It's quite funny actually, now that I think about it, my best mate said to me, like, when you first kiss a girl, like you're probably gonna get a little bit hard. And I went to kiss her and I didn't get hard. And I was like, mm, okay, well that didn't happen. As soon as I kissed that boy, honey, it was like, <laughs> everything was up. <laughs> <laughs> the flag had been riz. The flag had been riz. The flag had been yeah. risen. <laughs> it had, yeah. Now, before we go into more about this, I really want to go really deep into this whole conversation about sexuality because it's not something that I understand as a cisgender woman. Mm-hmm. But I would love to talk about your career first. I mean, you have worked at British Vogue. You have worked at Cosmo. These are like flagship brands and it's such an incredible thing for you to have done. You are also a fashion and celebrity stylist, but before that you worked in magazines. What was that time in your life like? So I look back at that time with such fond, warm feelings because I guess to give your um, listeners some context, I I grew up you know, not the popular kid at school. So fashion for me, fashion was my escape. It's where I felt like I belonged. I spent a lot of time in the library. I just was mesmerized by everything, anything fashion since the age of like four. So when I moved to London, I was 20, no, 21 when I moved to London, I had every intention of getting an internship with a fashion designer and becoming like the next Vivian Westwood or something. Mm. Um, But that was not the case for me. I ended up accidentally getting a job in fashion PR and marketing and then spent a year in PR and then um, subsequently switched to magazines. So I was like, I want to work in magazines. And when I think of that time, it was just like pinch me moment after pinch me moment. Um, when I worked in PR, for example, like my first job in PR was planning an event for Kylie Minogue, which like, <laughs> how does that happen? Like, how does that happen? You know, That's a, um, unreal. Yeah. Ridiculous. And like, you know, meeting Kylie Minogue. And then when I started working in magazines, it was like, in style, which was one of my favorite titles at the time, um, Cosmo UK, iconic, obviously. And then the Vogue thing happened so accidentally. I was um, I was at a fashion show and was I was assisting a stylist at the time, and I was walking out of the show and we were like stuck in like people traffic. And the woman to my left was Alexandra Schulman, who at the time was the editor. And I was like pretty brave back then. I mean, I, I like to think I still am, but back then I was just like, do you know what? You only get one shot. Go for it. So I stopped her and I introduced myself to her and I was like, I'm just going to fangirl for a moment, but I bought Vogue with my lunch money at 11, which is true. And I've always wanted to work there. Like, how can I work there? And she was pretty like cold. She just said, here's the email email address for my assistant. Email her your CV. And I was like, okay, great. Went home, do the email. Two weeks later, I'm interning at Vogue. Like it, like, so that sort of stuff, like you can't script that stuff. And I am a big believer in the universe and, you know, mm-hmm. things are meant to be and you manifest these things over time. And that those two years in London, I was poor as hell, but, oh, my God, I was so rich <laughs> with experiences. Like every experience was better than the one before. It was just incredible. When you're talking about this story, all I can see is what I call the golden crown above your head. So everything you touch turns to gold and this golden crown literally is the sign of luck. It's the sign of fortune. It's the sign of being at the right place at the right time. You've also got the absolute kahunas to go up to someone on the street and be like, hey, hire me. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the... What the worst thing that someone can say to you is no. Like that's the worst Mm. thing they can say. And you may never meet that person again. So you're not going to stand next to the editor of British Vogue every day. Like those opportunities don't come around. So when you're there, make the most of them. So I've just always very much, I always tell people, whenever people ask me for fashion advice or how to get into the industry, I never tell them to go to uni. I just tell them to email every single person that you admire and keep emailing them until they give you a chance. Because the more, like, it's just, it's the only way I truly believe I've learned in my career. I didn't go to uni. I didn't get a fashion degree. That wasn't my calling. I just 
learned on the ground. And I just feel so grateful for those right place, right time, sliding doors moments, you know? And then so after British Vogue, then you come back and you're like working for Cosmo. So you started as like you went an intern again, right? Yeah. So it was that was like that was actually a really difficult time in my life because I came back from London and had achieved all these things. And I actually didn't want to leave London, but I had to because of my visa. Mm. So when I came home, I was kind of like, okay, we start from scratch now. And I started a blog and that's where like Star by Denny comes from. Mm. And yeah. And then with the blog, I kind of would travel to like Sydney and I took myself overseas and would sort of report on the shows. I always loved journalism and storytelling. So when I went to Sydney for Sydney Fashion Week, similar thing. I was just like, do you know what? I'm just going to introduce myself to the teams there. So I, I saw the Cosmo team um, and I'd done my research so I knew what they looked like. And I just said to them, like, are there any jobs going? And Nicole Lucas, who was the um, market editor at the time, she was like, look, we don't have any jobs, but if you want to come and intern, you can. And I was like, yeah, sure. And my parents were like, Denny, you're 27. You can't intern again. <laughs> and I was, I was like, but I have to, I have to. It doesn't matter where I've worked in London. Like this is a new country. Um, so yeah, I interned every day. Oh, sorry. Once a week for six months straight or maybe even nine months actually. Wow. Um, that's a long time. Yeah a long time in the fashion club and I was like the oldest intern and I had a retail job at the time and um, just loved being there. And then it got to a point where I started calling in sick to my retail job to intern two times a week instead of one time a week. (laughs) (laughs) So that paid off um, because then I got a job there. So yeah, um, I started off in the video department in the, uh, for the YouTube channel. They wanted to sort of um, build that um, channel and because I'd done video editing for my blog they were like look it's not a fashion job but like it's a paid job it's like you know you're on the books and I was like sign me up I'll do it um so th- that's another thing I've, I've learned as well in life is that you have to just take these opportunities they may not be exactly what you thought yeah. they would be but you've just got to take them totally totally grab them every opportunity that comes yeah. to you and also create your own opportunities as well which is what you're amazing Amen. at doing and which we'll talk about very shortly but you end up becoming the fashion editor of Cosmo magazine Australia that is without a doubt one of the most coveted jobs in this country when it comes to the magazine industry yeah the way i see it is you never know who you meet on your way up, like who's going to be there on your way back down, essentially. Someone once told me that, like, you should always treat the cleaner as if they're the CEO and vice versa. Um, And a really great example of that is when I worked at Cosmo, I had an intern, this gorgeous intern, who would later go on to be my editor at the magazine that I just finished working at in Geelong. So you always have to be humble. Like this world that we work in and, and have worked in can be very, very fickle and superfluous and ego driven but if you're actually there to do the job and you just genuinely love your job and you want that job regardless of the fancy title then I don't see why you need to walk around with an ego so when I came home it was like yeah I'll intern again and and as you just said like I ended up with you know the top spot in the last nine months of the magazine's history which is even that in and of itself you know I was let's say for argument's sake, the first male fashion editor of that magazine, like in, in Australia's history. So those, those things I will never, ever take for granted. And yeah. Oh, now I'm going to get a bit emotional. Like Cosmo, Cosmo was just the best job, like the best job ever. Yeah. I will never forget being at my computer and we got pulled into a meeting into this little cupboard on level four to say that Cosmo was closing and that we had to kind of, when we had to come back and we had to be really, really respectful of the fact that you guys had all just lost your jobs. And that was awful for us. I can only imagine what the hell was going through your mind when you found out that Cosmo closed. It all happened so quickly. We got an email Literally, we got an email that morning and I guess that's how these things happen because they can't forewarn you. Otherwise, you'd probably Mm. leave on your own accord. So we got an email that morning, all staff meeting. I had actually a meeting scheduled, like an external meeting, and my editor messaged me and said, please, can you make sure you're at the all staff meeting? And I was like, okay. And we walked in, we sat down, and we were so fortunate that our editor 
told us the news. It didn't come from like a higher up person. Um, and we all just sat around and cried for like 15 minutes. Then our publisher, she mm. came down and then she kind of confirmed the announcement in a more like sort of official way and kind of told us what the next steps were. Um, but she was also just so gracious and humble and warm um, and basically said to us like, here's the company credit card, go to the pub. And it was like 10. <laughs> so we did. So it was like 10.30, we went straight to the pub. And the only thing I can think to tell you is that in that moment, I just felt such an overwhelming sense of grief mm. um, and like a confusion because you're like, what now? Like, what do you mean? I don't have a job to wake up to tomorrow. Like, and I think I tied up my whole identity in that job. You know, I was Denny from Cosmo for five years and then suddenly I wasn't. And you're like, mm. what am I without Cosmo? It was very layered, very layered. Something that you don't know, <laughs> it's actually <laughs> making me laugh thinking about it. While you were having this grief stricken moment, I. <laughs> I'm intrigued. You, you don't know this, but okay, it was the week that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were getting married. I remember this really greatly. Yes. The reason I remember this is because <laughs> one of the PRs had sent us. <laughs> A fake Prince Harry. <laughs> and <laughs> no. Like a person had sent oh us God. this <laughs> fake Prince Harry. <laughs> and while you guys were like getting fired, Prince Harry, this <laughs> Was, oh my god! I was wish like, we could have seen that. Was like oh roaming through level four, and I was like trying oh. to shield him from you. And there were like oh. he had cookies, and I will never, ever, ever forget this. It, it was honestly oh the dichotomy god. of what was going on. Such an iconic oh, magazine wow. was closing, and here was this like degrade Prince Harry. <laughs> That is such a Bauer thing. Like the amount of crazy <laughs> shit that used to happen. Like your listeners going to be like, what do they mean? Like people, <laughs> brands, companies, they would pull the biggest stunts to get yeah. journalists to write about their yeah. shows or, or whatever. And like, yeah, so it was very, it's not uncommon for like a topless man to show up with donuts, Truly. for example. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, oh my gosh. Well, I love that for you. Speaking of Cosmo, though, why do you think it is such an iconic magazine? Why was it such an icon? Why was it so devastating to the industry when it closed? Yeah, I mean, Cosmo was founded by this incredible woman. Her name's Helen Gurley Brown. She was like the OG feminist in America. She was the first woman to be writing about sex and and sex from the um, through the female gaze with pleasuring a woman. You know, when she she wrote about abortion and miscarriages and just things that were not spoken about in the seventies and eighties. Um, and I think that legacy lived on in every edition of that magazine globally. And mm. in Australia, Cosmo was like, you know, your big sister who would give you a safe space for advice, for um, fashion tips, beauty tips. I used to always say Cosmo, the Cosmo reader would buy Cosmo and in that issue she would learn like a great new book to read, um, some new buzzwords to talk about over like cocktails. She learned how to give a blowjob, how to get herself blown, um, you know, what what dress to wear this weekend for under $200 and what lip gloss. And maybe it's like a few lifestyle things as well. It was just this perfectly curated gift to our reader every month that made her feel like, a, you know, a cosmopolitan woman. And mm. that's the title of the magazine. And I think the reason why it's still missed, I still get messages from readers on Instagram and, you know, we miss Cosmo. Um, every time I watch the bold type, I just burst into tears because it just brings back so many memories. And I think it's because that sort of magazine just does not exist on newsstands anymore. No. And I think the way that, the way that people consume news um, is so different now. And I think, you know, we were very aware of that. Um, there was always this kind of feeling like, print versus digital and we knew that digital was winning but yeah I just I will always miss Cosmo because Cosmo was my big sister when I was in high school you know Cosmo was the first place I ever saw like a naked man in the sealed section or you know could read about things that like made me question my own identity and I think mm. there are things that sometimes you wouldn't necessarily type into Google whereas Cosmo was just there and it was safe you know touching back on your bold type 
um, story, one million percent, that is exactly (laughs) what the bold type is, was your Cosmo office. I think the thing that most triggers me about the bold type is that it's so beautifully captures this family like when you work in any job but Mm. especially in that job you spend more time with these people than your actual friends or family you become such a tight-knit crew you stress over things that the average person just wouldn't even care about or understand necessarily like oh my god they put the wrong color on the masthead this month and like that could induce like severe anxiety for a week right but like when you're in the trenches with each other you just yeah I mean it's it like makes me well up thinking about it the family connections and the bonds that were made in that office over five years Uh, unparalleled to anything I've ever experienced in my life. I loved what you said, how it created your identity. Like you said, I was Denny from Cosmo and your your whole identity was tied up in that. You know, I was listening to the Good Bitch podcast, which you were on, friend of the show over here, and you told them that you wanted to be the person you wanted to see growing up. Yeah, I mean, you know... As I said at the start of our chat, growing up in Geelong, which is a very predominantly football-driven kind of town, um, yeah, very hetero, very hyper-masculine, I didn't have anyone in the media that even remotely resonated or looked like me. Um, You know, the only gay people in the media at the time were like, you know, hyper-flamboyant Elton John's and and then all of those people, not necessarily Elton, but like George Michael, for example, you know, they were getting HIV or they were getting like arrested for like having sex in a park and made out to be these like criminals to society. So as a kid, you watch all of this unfold on the news and all you see is like gay people are the devil. And you're like, oh, okay. If I had, just from the gay perspective, much less the non-binary perspective, if I had had like healthy, a healthy portrayal of gay anything represented to me in media, I would have been a much more well-rounded, happy human. Maybe I would have had like crushes on boys at school and maybe I could have kissed a boy, you know, at my year nine dance, but I, I never had that visibility. So to be able to do that now to the gay community and to the non-binary community is just something that I do not take for granted one bit because that's the sort of stuff that impacts people beyond beyond ego, you know? It's like being in a body shop campaign, of course that's incredible and of course that's something that gives me a lot of joy and it's like a nice thing to put within the body of my work but it's so much more than just about me. like that's the reason why I say yes to these things because I always think of that little kid in Geelong or in Shepparton or some rural town who has no queer visibility. And if I can even be a tiny, like little small fingerprint on their life of, of queer visibility, then like that to me is the reason why we live is to, is to provide space and hold space for other people. So yeah, it means a lot to me. And I know that you are an inspiration to so many people and I'm talking everybody because you live your truth and that is all. Why are you and I like emotional today? What is I going know. on? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's tearing up. I'm tearing up. Right. <laughs> everybody. Oh my We're all God. tearing up. This We're is therapy. This is therapy. This is therapy, but you are like, I, I, I kind of sometimes think to myself, oh, Anita, don't gush. And, but like, how can I not when you are living your truth and you are just stepping out into your power and it's, it's so magical to watch. You have to have so much pride in, in the way that you carry yourself, whether you, I know that you've had such a tough journey to get here, but Oh, like where you are now is so incredibly magical. Thank you. It's so, it's very, yeah. If I think about it for too long, I try not to think about it for too long because if I, if I spend too much time on, I'm really not very good at accepting praise, by the way. Um, it just makes me uncomfortable and I, I, that's something I need to work on myself. But, you know, I think the more that you walk around, um, I don't know, calling yourself an icon or something like that. Like I would never, ever, ever, those words would never come out of my mouth. No. But 
we just call you an icon. Well, so when, you know, well to your face, actually. <laughs> when someone says that those sorts of things or, or a, a mother messages me and says, you know, thank you so much for the way that you've educated my family, like that sort of stuff I really relish in because it is a really tough journey. And I am proud of myself because it's it's been a really tricky slog. And I think we need to become more comfortable with saying that. I think in Australia we have such tall poppy syndrome and all we do is just be self-deprecating. We really need to start like hyping ourselves up more like the Americans because it shouldn't be an uncomfortable thing to say that you're proud of yourself, you know? No, you should be proud yeah. of yourself. You know, people just are going to either accept you or they're not and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Let's talk about your identity. Sure. You now identify as non-binary. For those who are unsure about what this means, can you explain it? Sure. So a binary system is any kind of system that has two elements. So for a very long time, gender has been a binary construct. It consists of male or female. So to exist beyond that binary is basically what non-binary means. Whilst this feels like a new concept to some people, non-binary humans have existed since like the ancient Egyptians. Um, Joan of Arc was non-binary. There are many examples of non-binary identities in indigenous spaces and cultures. So it's actually not a new concept at all. And actually in many indigenous cultures, non-binary people are celebrated as like these gods because they are so multidimensional. And so, yeah, I think we really need to start, I need to start speaking about that more because I keep hearing this narrative of like, oh, all these millennials, they can't decide what they want to be. They're just going to invent a new gender um, or rebel against gender. But this has actually been around for a really long time. So that's non-binary in a nutshell. That is so fascinating. I did not know that either. Yeah. And actually it makes so much sense yeah. that there's it's been around forever. Yeah, so there's a really beautiful word for it. Um, in Hawaiian cultures, they actually have, I can't remember what the word is, but their non-binary people are so sacred that the Hawaiian people as as a culture celebrate them and like raise them like on a pedestal that they are like, you know, it's so, these things have been around forever. It's like, it's like homosexuality, same thing. So yeah, it's quite special. Yeah. May I ask, what is your view on the social construct of gender when a baby is born? Mm, Good question, Anita. I've been getting this question a lot lately, actually. Um, and I always am a bit hesitant to answer it. I've just had a, a niece, for example, she's six months old, bless her soul. And, you know, when she was born, <clears throat> the doctors assigned her female. We use she, her pronouns for Sophia. I myself even will run into seed and look at anything that is pink or glittery, like, you know, boom. Cause like, she's a girl. You know, she may turn 18 and tell us, actually, I don't identify with that gender. So the way I see it is I think in an ideal world, we would we would let children tell us how they feel in every capacity, you know, how they identify sexually, how they feel about their gender identity, as opposed to us like thrusting, you know, when kids are born, we instantly assign them a binary gender and we instantly just assume that they're going to be heterosexual. So I like this idea of living in a more evolved world where there are actually some parents who do this. There are some parents who raise what they call babies where they don't disclose the gender or the genitalia of their child to anyone except for doctors. Um, They use they, them pronouns for their kids and basically they're just waiting for their kids to tell them how they identify when they reach of age. So I think that's quite a very, very evolved concept, but I think... I think it might be a concept that starts to catch on. I think it's something that's definitely coming. Mm-hmm. And you knew from the age of three that you weren't a boy. Mm-hmm. Is that when you when you say of age, mm-hmm. do you mean at an age like three or is it any age that a child can say, mum, I am this? I think the thing is we underestimate how aware children are. I think it's much more complex than that because I know that with trans kids, for example, um, some people are very hesitant to allow children to transition before they turn like 16 or 18 or, you know, all of those age kind of those defining age moments from like a, a hot, like a medical standpoint, legal standpoint, all of that. But I think if you have a child and they are four or five or six or however old and they're expressing something to you, like 
I, the thing is, I didn't have the um, the vocabulary to articulate that to my mum and dad. I didn't. I couldn't say right. to them, "I'm not a boy," because I didn't even know what that meant. I just knew as a kid. Like when I look back at and think about memories, and I've got very photographic memories of like being two and three, like very early, and I just always know that like. I never felt like a boy. I always just gravitated towards anything female, but not not in a way that I wanted to be female. I just knew that like I was neither one or the other and that was really confusing. So I just always kind of assumed, well, you're just a very feminine boy, Denny. But it wasn't until I heard the vocabulary, the word non-binary, when I learned about they, them pronouns, I was like, oh, wait, this is the vocabulary to articulate how I felt my whole life. But I just never knew how to how to say that out loud. I will be really honest. I was petrified to speak to you mm. in, a, in the sense that I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Mm. I didn't want to address you in the wrong way. I didn't want to because I feel ignorant and my knowledge of these things and I know there are so many other people out there feeling... Mm the same way. So for people like me, and I'm being very open and honest here because I want to know, I want to be knowledgeable, I want to know the right thing to say. For people like me, how, how can you help me understand these things and what kind of knowledge, because knowledge is power, do I need? Mm. So the first thing I would say is give yourself a break because no one is perfect. I still misgender other non-binary people. I sometimes misgender myself by accident. And, you know, it's a rewiring of our brain. No one is perfect and everyone is going to stuff up. But what I would say is don't let the fear of stuffing up hold you back from evolving and and learning, right? Because people do that a lot in life. They go, "Mm, too hard, too scary, I'm going to leave it. And then you just continue. So the fact that you're even here and you want to have this conversation and you want to educate yourself, you're already doing the right thing. Um, There was a really beautiful quote that was kind of going viral during the BLM movement last year. And it said something to the effect of, though I will never understand, I will always stand by you. And I think that's a really great... um, message in life. You will never understand what it means to be non-binary because it's not your lived experience, honey. And that's okay. You know, that's, that's absolutely fine, but you can stand with the non-binary community. And I would just suggest, you know, like diversifying. I mean, it starts with what you consume on a day-to-day basis. We're all on the internet, on Instagram every single day. So again, like during BLM or various other things, like during the Trans Lives Matter movement, I made a conscious effort to follow more trans people, to follow more people of colour, to follow more creators that had marginalised voices, um, bodies that, you know, my Instagram used to just be full of white, skinny, ripped gay guys or hot, like, bikini girls. And I was like, this is not good for anyone, certainly not for me. So I need to start diversifying. (laughs) Um, So it's the same thing, you know. I would encourage your audience and yourself, just Google, you know, um, non-binary creators. There are, I could give you three names right now who are incredible. Alok V. Menon is amazing. They are a a pioneer in in the non-binary space. They've worked with Jamila Jamil. They coach Sam Smith through their transition. Um, Mm. Jeffrey Marsh is another beautiful creator in America who I love and he's Oh, sorry. See, I just did it. They are such an incredible voice that educates me on a daily basis. And then the third one would be a local legend, Zoe Tarakis, who is a beautiful actor from Wentworth. And they were actually the first non-binary person I ever met and they changed my life. So if we just start listening to the voices of of the marginalised, we can all just grow and learn so much as people. You know, Mm. that's all it takes really. My mum is turning 65. She'll probably kill me for calling out her age. (laughs) (laughs) But she probably loves it that I'm calling her out at all. (laughs) I was telling her that you were coming on and and she was really like, I just, I don't understand it. And that generation, what about your parents? Because they were Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, Yeah, it was... um... Coming out as non-binary was harder than coming out as gay because 
they at least had something to reference gay to, you know? Um, my mum, for example, all of her favourite singers as a girl in the 80s were gay. Um, you know, they watched Will and Grace and they watched various other TV shows that had gay men on them. So they were like, okay, like, so you're like Ellen DeGeneres. Okay. And it was like, it still took them a little while to get used to it, but at least they had some kind of reference. When I came out as non-binary, there was no reference point. Um, the only thing that they had in their mind was transgender um, via Caitlyn Jenner because we're big Kardashian fans in this house. So when I came out, they were like, wait, so do you want to be a girl? And I was like, no, 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 that's a di- that's different, mum. Like, that's not what I want to do. Um, it really helped that yes. I could instantly name Sam Smith because my mum loves Sam Smith and they're non-binary. So, you know, um, yeah. Courtney Act is another beautiful non-binary person and they did a beautiful episode on um, the ABC, I think it's called Australian Stories, which I watched with my family, so that helped a lot. But it, it definitely took time. And But again, just to your point earlier, I don't think it's something they will truly ever understand, but they can still support and love unconditionally, you know? Um, but, it, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but we have come leaps and bounds. And you yourself really struggled coming out again because this was the second time that you came out in your life. What was that like? Wow, it was really scary. I'm not going to, like, sugarcoat it. It was, I was petrified because, you know, for 12 years I was a gay man and I was so adamant on, like, you know, I used to hate being always pigeonholed as, like, this feminine boy and, and the gay world can be brutal. So <clears throat> I had developed really thick skin and I was like, no, I'm a man. So coming out as non-binary was really hard because I had to really look some hard truths in the eye and I had to come to terms with what is this going to mean for me first and foremost as a human? How am I, how am I going to exist? Is everything going to change when I wake up and tell people? Then it was like, how will my family and friends react? And then I started to think like, well, how will this affect my dating? And, you know, will ever, will anyone ever want to love me? Like I'm hard enough to love, like, how is this going to work? You know, like, so it's all of those self doubt things. And just to get like a little bit deep and potentially a little bit dark, but there's a reason why. Um, there've only been two times in my life that I've ever had suicidal thoughts. The first time was coming out as gay. And the second time was coming out as non-binary. And I think that, speaks volumes to how difficult this can be when you don't have visibility or you don't have a support system or an understanding. Um, You know, the trans suicide rate is 11 times more than like cis people. So it's not surprising to me because I'm someone who comes from such a loving home, such a supportive town. Geelong has accepted me in ways I never could have imagined. And for me to be sitting there during lockdown one night on the side of the road, contemplating my life, you know, I can't even imagine what people in less privileged, um, you know, environments must feel. So it was really hard, really hard. (sighs) Thank you so much for sharing that. I know. I feel very, I feel safe saying that to you because I've actually never really said that in an interview before. Like it's, yeah, it was very scary. What got you out of that moment though? What made you realise that actually everything's worth living for? Mm. So it's really, it's really interesting because this is, this answer is not going to be an answer that anyone expects to hear. I have a very strong relationship with God And whilst I hate religion, hate religion, I still have faith in in the creator, the universe, God, whatever you might want to call it. So, you know, as a kid, you know, when you grow up in, in a religion and you're going, you know, to church three times a week and you're praying to God and whatever, you start to develop this really intimate relationship with this being that is greater than you. And God has just shown up in my life time and time again whenever I've, whenever I've needed them, um, they've always shown up. So in the, in those two moments, the gay time and, and the non-binary time, I remember just kind of looking up to heaven and just praying to God and, and saying, and saying to God, you know, you gave me life for a reason. I'm here for a greater reason. This feels so hard right now, but I'm not giving up because what a waste of a life, you know, like, I owe it to myself. I owe it to you to 
to live here. You know, there's this beautiful song by Beyonce called I Was Here. And I always think of that song in moments of like darkness because it's like, I want to be here. I want to make a change in this world. If for no one else, just for myself. Um, so yeah, weirdly, like those DMs with old mate upstairs, <laughs> they always pull me, they always pull me through. That is so incredible. And yes, your life is worth living for. And yeah. And anybody who's listening who's going through the same thing, you know, there is help. There are people there are people listening. Always. You can pick up the phone. You can DM us. Denny and I will absolutely yeah. answer your messages. We will absolutely answer your messages. So um uh, that's that's heart heartbreaking and heart wrenching, but I am so glad that you were able to pull yourself out of it. And I have recently changed my pronouns on Instagram to she her. Woo, good girl. Okay, I'm so glad you're clapping because I was concerned that as a heterosexual woman that I shouldn't be changing my pronouns. You are exactly the person that should be sharing your pronouns and being vocal with your pronouns, and I'll tell you why. So the whole thing with pronouns and the reason why this has become such a global movement, like be vocal about your pronouns, is because being vocal with our pronouns provides a safe space for queer people. It also provides a safe space so that you don't get misgendered because the whole thing is just because you look the way Anita looks, I can't just assume that you're a woman, yes, of course. right? Like I, that would be remiss of me. So by you saying, hi, my name is Anita, my pronouns are she, her, I know instantly two things. I know how you identify and I know that you're an ally to the trans community. And that in and of itself is huge. Kamala Harris has her pronouns in her bio. She's the vice president of the USA. Like everyone, I truly believe that in a year, uh, like easily in a year, this will just be a common thing that people don't even think about. And then I think the next step will be us like introducing ourselves to people in social settings with our name and pronoun, because I'm finding yeah, because I'm finding that, like, on the weekend, for example, I went to a house party and just walked in and said, G'day, like, I'm Denny. That was all I said. And then maybe half an hour later, someone used he, him pronouns. And I didn't pick, I didn't correct them because it's just not my thing. It's like, it's fine. You've never met me before. Yes. But then later in the night, they looked at my Instagram and they were like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I misgendered you earlier. And I was like, it's fine. It's all good. Like, you weren't to know and I didn't tell you. So I think going forward... I will just start introducing myself with my pronouns in these spaces because it's just like instant safety. Everyone knows it's all good. We move on. That makes you know? so much sense. And now I'm really, really proud to say that I have she and her yes. on my Instagram because I am an ally and I want everybody to know that and I think everybody needs to change their pronouns as well. It's yeah. so incredibly important. Let's talk about The Bachelorette. Oh, yes, let's. Brooke Blurton has just been announced as The Bachelorette. And I'm like, amen, hear, hear. Amen. First Indigenous Bachelorette and also first pansexual Bachelorette. Now, I actually had the very big fortune of chatting to Brooke and it was so interesting what she told me because I said to her, you know, what do you think about people saying, oh, you're the first Indigenous and you're the first pansexual? And she said, I wish people would just kind of say, oh, it's Brooke and she's the Bachelorette. So when it was announced, I DM, I voice noted her actually straight away and I was like, oh, my God, do you know how iconic this is? Um, and you know what? Like, to her credit, I would imagine that she would like to just be treated as another bachelorette. Of course. But I think the, the magnitude of this moment, yes. the bachelorette and the bachelor franchise has been so problematic in Australia. It's been so white. It's been so like, it's always been heterosexual. Always. I actually don't think there's, to my knowledge, even in like international series, I've never known them to have, have they ever had one? The only person, um, no, when I say the only person, Ellie Miles, she does identify as bisexual, I believe. However, right. it wasn't, she only had men suitors. Right. So was that last that year? That was last year. The so sisters. The, the sisters. So this is right. this is truly the first time ever that there will be yeah. male and female, that she is Indigenous. It's yeah. actually the first time ever. Yeah. It's huge. And, and so it's, it's huge. huge. And I think, you know, 
I hope and I know she will be. Like, Brooke should be so proud because this show is watched by, you know, middle Australia. It is free to air. It is prime time. It is rural. It's metropolitan. If anything, it's probably skewed more towards regional because I feel like Metro watch TV TV less and less. But, you know, in regional places, it's very much a thing. You have dinner with your parents and you watch the tally and there will be little kids now that will watch that show um, or teenagers or adult, you know, all ages will watch this show and A, there's going to be Indigenous representation, which like about bloody time. B, there's going to be this beautiful example of queer dating and the fact that you can be attracted to any person. It doesn't matter what they look like or what body they live yeah. in. And I just think that that is a moment and I could not be more excited because I pretty much swore off The Bachelor <laughs> after like a few years ago. But now I'm like, yes, sis, um, let's no. do it. And do you know what? To her credit, you're right. She did. She's so proud of that. Do not get me wrong. She is so yeah. proud of that. No, I'm sure. And, but yeah. it was really interesting chatting to her because I just said like, are you so sick of everyone just saying, you know, mm. this is this and this is this and this is like identifying her as the first kiss in, it was the first same-sex kiss with Alex Nation in Bachelor history on Bachelor in Paradise. It was actually mm. not even Bachelor history. It was reality TV history in Australia. So mm-hmm. she has wow. really been a, at the forefront of being a first, first, first. I am so here for it. I absolutely Same. cannot wait for this season. Same. Honestly, it's going to And gonna I'm so excited off. to see like, yeah, and I actually can't wait for, like, the, like, straight mask guys to have a little competition under their belts. With that, like, sorry, you don't get to win all the time, honey. It's going to be great. I can't wait. It's going to be incredible. And I hope also that they extend the season because they actually are about um, five or six episodes shorter. Always, yeah. We need a full blow. We need a proper. It needs a full we need, season. We need the real deal. We're petitioning for it. We're petitioning for it. This is such a huge change that's come about with The Bachelorette. But what do you want to see change in our world when it comes to the queer community? In a larger sense? Or do you mean like in terms of representation, just in general? Everything. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me what I would love to see is just, it's so basic, but it's just equality. Like the meaning of equality is that we are all equal and yet we are still not equal just because same-sex marriage was, you know, passed, which by the way, you know, there was like 42% of Australians that voted no for that. Um, There is still so much more to go. This week I'm doing um, a collaboration with Amnesty International Australia around banning conversion practices because it's still legal to do conversion therapy in certain parts of Australia, you know. So there is so much to do. I would love to live in a country that makes trans people feel safe and valid and heard. And, you know, it can be really scary to like get on public transport or catch an Uber or just do very basic mundane things. But I truly believe that the way to make those massive shifts, these cultural shifts um, and very much like mindset shifts are through visibility and representation. The more that, uh, you know, marginalized voices are amplified, suddenly this starts to become normal. The more people we see on TV, in magazines, in advertising, like, you know, we look at, like, sports. It's so dominated by white, cis, like, people. Mm. End of story, people. We look at every breakfast show on Australian television right now is co-anchored by a white woman and man. Yes. Like, come on, Channel 7. Come on, Channel 9. Come Come on, on Channel Channel 10 10 as well, yeah. While Lee Lali cannot be the only person of colour, like there are so many incredible people, you're just not working hard enough. So we need to start diversifying what people are seeing on a daily basis. We need to start making sure that queer voices are actually celebrated. Don't have us just as like the token queer person because it's Mardi Gras month. Mm. Like we just need to be there all the time. Like it's that simple. So it would just be really nice to be approached in an equal manner is essentially what I'm saying. That token thing is so intriguing to me because it's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't because when is it being tokenism and when is it not? Yeah. So I always say that like tokenistic visibility is better than none. Mm -hmm. Um, However, it's not enough to just be performative as an ally. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to just go, okay, we are re- we are releasing this cup during Mardi Gras and it's going to have a rainbow on it. Okay, bye. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of the year, we're not going to support anything to do with queer rights, queer voices. We're never going to use queer people on our Instagram. It's just for the month of March. 
like time's up on that. And I've had some really interesting conversations with brands and PR agencies and other people and, and try to sort of like educate um, the industry that I work in as like my own kind of duty of care, because it's not enough to just show up at those times of year. Like pride is about to kick off globally. Um, so we're going to be seeing all the pride collaborations and I'm here for it. Like amazing. But I just want them to start actually being just like really authentic allies, you yes. know, are they, are they authentically showing up for their community? How many queer people do they employ as a, as a company first and foremost? Like what are all the other things, you know, all the, in, like all the internal things. Um, it's not enough to just say, yep, we support the gays, but do you pay them? Do you ever book them or pass them? Like we need to keep looking, you know? So it's layered, but to answer your question, I think that, tokenistic is better than nothing at all. Otherwise, then we would never have marginalised people on TV. So true. So true. Right? I just think, like, where's I'm that sure line, there was a, you know? Yeah, I'm sure there was an uncomfortable conversation in the Channel 10 office when they were like, okay, so we're, the Bachelorette's been cancelled because of how white we are. We need to change it up. And I'm glad that they did, you know? They've like, done a phenomenal job. Like They've done a phenomenal job. It was yeah. the best. I don't think I've ever seen comments and I've had to see a lot of them, let me tell you, yeah. doing my job, the amount of incredible comments that I have seen for this particular season of The Bachelorette. I know. It, it's not even been filmed yet it's not even recorded they haven't even (laughs) finished casting like at the time of this recording they have not finished casting guys you can literally get applying uh, get (laughs) applying to be brooks number one i'm telling you it's happening now (laughs) and we're still frothing over it it's so incredible so back to you i do have an interesting question and I'm so curious if I've asked it. Is there one question that people ask you the most that makes you uncomfortable or that you don't really like Mm. about your sexuality? Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you know what? It's like really little menial things in a day-to-day environment. Um, You know, like this is going to sound so trivial, but like in an everyday environment, the amount of times that people stop me and ask me about my nails, which so to your listeners, I've got very long acrylics and these have become, thank you. And they've become an extension of my identity and I just love them so much. Right. But on any given day, like I don't walk around wearing like pink chul robes every day. So if I'm like in a basketball tee, like today and shorts and I go to the milk bar, I still have these nails. So they're the instant thing that people find quite jarring. And they'll say like, how do you do anything with those nails? Like, and it's very like, they're like talking down to me and I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not cute. So it's like stuff like that or. It's trivializing you. Yeah, exactly right. And um, on the weekend, which was really actually quite uh, annoying and, and uncomfortable, I had a girl roll her eyes at me in the queue for a public bathroom at a nightclub because um, we were all just kind of in the queue, at boys and girls and days and, you know, all of us. And she was like, I'm so sick of this. The boys can't be in this queue. This is the girls' bathroom. And she was saying it to me. And I, you know, and I didn't want to make a big deal. And I just said to her, well, I'm actually not a boy, but I will get out of the queue. And she was like, you're not a boy. And she rolled her eyes at me. And I was just like, oh, I don't have the time, nor do I have the desire to have this conversation. I just need to pee. So it's like stuff like that. Are you you serious? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. Public restrooms are the bane of my existence because if I go into a boy's public restroom, which I normally do, Mm. just FYI, Mm. I have like weird looks from men or I have weird looks from children um, because of the nails generally. You know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm pretty cash. Um, If I go into the girls' bathroom... I know that that will be weird because I have facial hair. So women are going to be like, what's this bloke doing in the bathroom? You know, so it's like those little day-to-day things that are just, that should be really simple and that are made so much more painful as a trans person. I'm, I have no Hmm. words. I'm speechless. Going to the bathroom is a human right. Yeah. (laughs) And you have, my bladder, to, what can I do? you have to defend yourself about the bathroom yeah. that you go into. I'm, yeah, I'm. I feel so privileged, and I'm. I'm. I'm in. I'm in. I'm shocked. Mm-hmm. 
But I mean, the fact that you're aware of your privilege speaks volumes to who you are as a person and who yeah. I know you to be. Yeah. Because there are people who just, they just don't, they're not aware and they just, they live in, in a bubble. And, you know, similar like to what you were saying earlier, don't consider yourself to be ignorant. Like you only, you are who you surround yourself with. So if you're surrounding yourself with people who are like you, mm. who are probably cisgendered and heterosexual, mm-hmm. then that's all you're going to know. So yes. it's just about, you know, surrounding ourselves with a, a variation of humans because if we're not learning and growing like and evolving, like what's the point of living, you know, what's the point of life? I'm so obviously so fortunate to have somebody like you who is so open and teaching and I think that, if, if there's anyone out there who doesn't understand these things, you need to ask the questions. You do, babe. And honestly, like, that's why when you just asked me that question, like, honestly, in my mind, I have a, I have a series on my Instagram called Queer Q&A and I always started off every week by saying, no question is a dumb question. As long as you ask it with respect and love, you yeah. can ask me anything you want yeah. because, you know, the fact that you're here and you want to learn, I'm like blue tick, brilliant, you know, great, love that. A Let's blue tick. I got a blue you tick. Know, <laughs> a blue tick, verified, sis. Like I'm verified. You're verified. So yeah, I just think people need to be less scared of asking questions, but you know, within reason, ask people questions with empathy and respect, mm. and you know, the rest should just flow. So in saying that, my last question. is what is one piece of advice that you would give yourself during the hardest moment of your life? That's a really good question. Well, the hardest moment in my life, one thing just instantly comes to my mind and it's not even coming out weirdly. With hindsight, you know, we can look back and go, wow, this was really heavy or this was really hard. Um, I was in a really, really traumatic relationship. It almost broke me in every way, shape and form. And there was a moment where I was sitting in, uh, I can't remember where it is, but it's just near Woolara, this beautiful park in Woolara. And I did not know how to get out of this situation. Um, And I thought it was never going to get better. I just thought my life can't, can't get better. Like this is such a shitty situation. How have I become this person? So I would, I would love to go back to that, to that little person sitting there in the park and tell them, pack your bags, get up, walk away. You are worthy. You are amazing. You have unconditional love and you have empathy and respect and you're kind and you deserve only the best. So stop putting up with what you're putting up with and just get up and leave. Slow clap. <laughs> Slow clap, everybody. <laughs> because, you know, like life, you know, my mum used to always say to me, like, life is only as hard as you make it. And I kind of agree with that. You know, when, when something is looking you dead in the eye and you're like, this is a shitty situation, but yet you can't pull yourself out of that situation because love is so blinding. Um, you have to just make yourself a better situation. Um, and, and that can go for so many things, you know, jobs, partners, just mental health. You know, sometimes life can be really hard, but you just have to remember that life is worth living, as Justin Bieber says. You just got to pick it up and keep going. <laughs> I could not be more grateful to you for coming on to this podcast and for teaching me so much and for being so gracious with your time and being so open and you are truly incredible and I know that this is just the beginning for you. I was so concerned about offending or saying the wrong thing but then I just realised during our conversation it's so much bigger than me and it's not about me. It's about me just respecting you and having knowledge about you, learning about you, understanding where you're coming from and it's just so much bigger than me and thank you so much for showing me that. It's my pleasure. And I think you just hit the nail on the head because it's like we all, we're all the main character in our life, right? Like that's just a given, especially people like you and I, we're very high energy, like high vibrating humans. 
So it can be very easy to just kind of, you know, not come from an ego place because it's not about ego, but, you know, well, I don't want to do this because I don't want to offend this person. But then when you're suddenly in that moment and and it's all flowing and the conversation is just flowing, you're like, whoa, actually, this is so much bigger than both of us, you know? And it's like all the stuff I said, Mm. I absolutely mean, like the body shop stuff or anything, any kind of thing that looks shiny and fluffy to people is never done by me for clout or for like to pat myself on the back, you know, at night. It's because like, okay, what's the bigger picture? Like what will this do the bigger picture? And this conversation I'm sure will, you know, touch so many people and you should be so proud of yourself for fostering those sorts of conversations, you know? But thank you so much for being on this this podcast with me. I, yeah. Oh my gosh, darling, it's been an absolute pleasure, and this has been such a lovely way to start my week. I'll let you go. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, that was such a good chat. On the next episode, I chat to former executive producer of the Kyle and Jackie O Show and Kyle's right hand man, Bruno Boucher. Bruno chatted about working on the hit radio show, his mental health, and of course, his epic turn as the List King. Our chat was so much fun and he had me laughing from start to finish. This episode is truly one of a kind and not to be missed. And if you like this chat, you can rate, follow and review and follow me on Instagram at AnitaAnnabelle underscore and at the good chat pod make sure you tune in every wednesday for another episode of the good chat with anita annabelle i can't wait to see you then bye this episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners including references to suicide please check the show notes for a more detailed description and contact lifeline if you need support on one three one 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 four